To many people, the concept of impact investing is a paradox. They approach it with a healthy dose of scepticism as they ask whether another complex financial structure, another investment vehicle, is really the best way to deal with the problems caused by putting too much faith in finance in the first place. It's a valid concern and it leads many in the sector to be forever on their guard, forever defining and redefining what this term, impact, really means. My guest today knows this challenge well. Jed Emerson has been at the forefront of impact investing's evolution for many decades. And in his new book, he asks us all to think far deeper than simply which fund structure will optimise gains and to give up this superficial obsession with impact metrics. Instead, he wants us to question what is the purpose of capital anyway? At the heart of it, why are we doing this? If it's simply to alleviate our guilt for extracting profits, then that's not enough. In this quest for impact, there's always a drive for change. But who are we changing? If we want to change a community to help it develop, then perhaps we also need to accept that we may need to change ourselves in the process. And this is what we're all about here at the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold. And I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. Jed is a stalwart of the impact scene. He co-authored the first book on impact investing, and he coined the concept of blended value some 20 years ago, trying to get us to stop putting a dividing line between work and philanthropy, between making money giving it away. His mission is to fuse it all together. Now he's lectured at Harvard, Stanford and Oxford business schools and I've always seen him as the conscience of impact investing and perhaps even the conscience of capitalism if his latest book is anything to go by. Now I was pretty damn excited to get the chance to speak with Jed. He's a big character and he was generous with his time the conversation sways between the philosophical and the technical, and Jed managed to shift my view on some major topics in the course of this one. I really do hope you get as much out of this episode as I did. I'll be keen to discuss it with you all on LinkedIn and on the Good Future Instagram page. Drop me a review on iTunes if you liked it, and you can check out all the links and the show notes on my website, johntreadgold.com. All right, nothing left to do but dive in. Here we go. get to Australia very often? You know, I've been twice and um, was just meeting today with someone where we were talking about the Australian scene and I was thinking, oh, I got to get back to Australia. So I hope to do that sometime in the next year or two. What's the vibe? What's the mood about the Australian scene? I think the mood is that there's been a lot of activity and and a fair amount of progress over the last years in terms of you know, the framing and, you know, teeing up the impact opportunity in Australia. But I think there's still opportunity to see more capital actually deployed and more institutions really stepping up and doing more relative to impact investing. I'm curious to see what the role of uh, government is over the next year and, you know, maybe 
with the new administration, there'll be more emphasis on impact. But I think impact investing is kind of a, a bipartisan theme. So mm. I would hope it's, you know, something that is continued to advance in terms of the enabling environment uh, that supports it. Yeah, that's it. The state governments have, have been doing quite well with social impact investing and that sort of stuff, you know, the, the um, social impact bonds, and that's positive. But yeah, the uh, federal government is a little bit slower. But then the Foreign Affairs Department and the Aid Department are uh, talking about an emerging markets impact fund in Southeast Asia. And yeah, I think that's a place where um, a lot of the private sector have also kind of ignored a little bit is the opportunities in our neighbourhood. I guess it's quite a different skill set to go offshore. We've got plenty of talk. We just need to turn it into action. Great. We'll see. So anything I can do to help, let me know. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Good stuff. I'll hold you to that. Have you taught in the past? You've worked at sort of business schools, not at Stanford and Harvard. Sure. I, so I taught at the Kellogg School at Northwestern uh, outside of Chicago, as well as at uh, Harvard Business School, the social enterprise uh, courses there. And then also taught at NYU Abu Dhabi uh, in the Middle East. I think that's about it for in-classroom work. And then I've had uh, faculty appointments at, at Stanford and Harvard and Oxford. And currently, I'm a senior visiting research fellow at University of Heidelberg in Germany. You do get around from the Middle East over to Germany. Is the process very different in somewhere like Abu Dhabi? Is it a very different sort of experience? I think, it, you know, for me, it was different in that it was undergrad, and I usually teach graduate level. And it was a, uh, within the context of a new program uh, there at NYU Abu Dhabi. And so uh, that was also kind of unique and different. And it was, a, you know, a truly global class. I mean, we had folks from all over the world in that classroom. And usually, obviously, in the States, you get some diversity in terms of location, but most of the students come from the United States. Sure. Yeah, that must be really interesting. Lots of different viewpoints and that sort of thing. I think that's something we have in Australia. I recently did a Master of International Relations and, and often I was the only Australian in the room. So that made it a really, yeah, really rich kind of debate, conversational type element, which is what it's all about in, in graduate school. So the book itself, you've squirreled away yourself for a few years. I mean, look, you went deep in this book. You referenced ancient theology, philosophers, the Bible. It's all in there. Are you just generally well-read? Or did you seek out these texts to, to answer this question? I think of myself as well-read. And I think most of the folks that are probably going to be listening to this will think of themselves as well-read. I, I guess the thing that I was struck by was that I actually was not. <laughs> and the more I read, the more I realized how little I actually knew and how much of my knowledge was, for lack of a better word, kind of bumper sticker understandings of uh, issues or themes or history or traditions. And what was fascinating was that the more I got into it, the more I kind of was drawn into it in terms of the process that I took was not, it was not a linear kind of process. It was more what I thought of as a kind of an open architecture uh, reading where I would find a book like Sapiens or, you know, uh, Mankind and Mother Earth or, you know, some of these books that are pretty serious efforts. And you'd be reading along and there'd be a reference to a concept or to a philosopher or an individual. And I'd be like, hmm, you know, I need to track that down. And then you end up kind of following the footnotes, if you will, which would lead you to another book on, you know, the history of finance. And 
you would read that and that would take you into a reference around philosophy and all of a sudden you'd be reading about Spinoza or something. So I really just kind of uh, went where I was taken by the footnotes in a lot of the books that I read, which opened up areas of inquiry that I wouldn't have necessarily come on if I had done it in a more of a, a linear approach. Sure. Yeah. Leading off on tangents is part of the joy. I mean, we find that generally on the internet, but when you do it with texts, you just need to sort of add at about 10x the amount of time, don't you? If, you, if you're going to follow those footnotes and read through so many different books. And I think that's the beauty of yours is that it's a really great jumping off point for people to be able to follow that. You know, the bibliography is huge, but look, that's great to hear that, you know, you realize how little you know in, in terms of the old adage that the wise man knows he knows nothing. And, you know, we can keep learning these things. And, and that's what I found in having these conversations. So I'll have sort of questions that have always been lodged in the back of my head, but I kind of, they're in that category of unknowable, you know, the, the, the paradox of humanity. But then I'll ask these questions of, of very smart people and they'll have an answer. And they've done the investigation of them and they've gone further. And that kind of cracks it open for me. And that's what this book did as well. It cracked open a lot of elements about the assumptions of capitalism, sustainability, environmentalism, living within an ecosystem and, and the options that we've got. Uh, I think really colourful and, and illustrative. So I thank you for that. And it certainly it's really thorough. And I mean, there's some big lofty philosophical questions in there. How, well, look, I was going to say, how practical is it? But maybe we should dive into some of the, the core concepts. I think a good one is looking back at, at past epochs to understand where we are. You say you can't understand the Anthropocene if you don't understand the axial age. What are some of the key lessons of history that we should remember that might've been forgotten that can help us with this current focus on impact? One of the things that really struck me in the course of, of doing the reading and then as I tried to pull this together to present some of this to, to readers was the idea that it's not necessarily that there was a, a previous point in time, although we need to be aware of you know, things like the Axial Age, as much as that there are themes that get explored and are interwoven over the course of history, and we need to understand some of what those are, because I would argue that we actually know how to think about uh, many of the challenges that we have before us today, but because we approach so much of our work with really an, an ahistorical, or in some ways a mistaken understanding of what history brought us to where we are, uh, that we forget uh, how to bring that knowledge, uh, that wisdom uh, into today, to help us kind of think differently about the current kind of context and situation. And so, for example, you know, after three to 400 years of, of modern capitalism, and in particular financial capitalism, we somehow think this is the way it's either, maybe not always been, but you know, this is the pinnacle. This is our best practical way to think about the world, when in fact there's a lot of different ways we could be reflecting on where we are and how we need to move forward. And in fact, by assuming that financial capitalism is the greatest development uh, to come down the pike, we actually are limiting our options and our ideas about how to deal with current challenges and crises. So I think the, the main takeaway for me is that, yes, there are certain periods that we want to be aware of and pay attention to and reflect on, but it's really a set of kind of themes and issues that, that pull forward uh, having to do with a more holistic approach having to do with systems thinking, having to do with understanding ourselves as connected to Earth uh, in a way that we tend to have forgotten. 
And, and so within what do you think are the biggest challenges right now? Your book asks this question, what is the purpose of capital? It's deconstructing capitalism. But then within that, what are the, what are the biggest challenges? Well, I think, you know, it's going to sound a little weird, but I think one of the biggest challenges is that we have a lot of people who think they actually know the answer to that question. And in the book, I have one or two lines that actually say what the purpose of capital is. But for the most part, you've got about, you know, 340 pages of reflection and inquiry and kind of sitting with the questions, if you will, as opposed to I think what I hear a lot is people who present their analysis, they present their conclusion, and they present their solution. And what happens is when we take that approach, we, in essence, are locking ourselves into positions, and then we argue from our position. Whereas if we recognize that in many ways we need to be in greater dialogue with each other, the potential approaches and solutions really will come out of the space in between what I think and believe and what you may think and believe. And that that's really, I think, how we're going to move forward is to argue less about the answers and spend more time sitting with the fundamental questions and elements of the questions that have to do with meaning and purpose and value in order then to construct the right set of tools, uh, the right possibilities, the right proposed solutions for us to, to advance. Yes, this idea that people sit within a, a narrow dogmatic view of capitalism and that we're never going to break out of that if we're all keep going in this cycle of, of the same conversations. I mean, in your book, you have some really great imagery of this concept of sitting in a house that's well lit in the woods and you can see everything very clearly because you've got four walls, the chair's very well defined, you've got bright lights on, but outside is dark and kind of a little bit scary. If you turn the lights off in the house, you then get a sort of a, a sense of grey, that then the outside is lit somewhat inside, not quite as clear, but, but you can see more. You can step outside and enjoy the broadness of the world. Is that how you sort of see this issue, that, that we need to find that position in between rather than wanting everything clearly defined? You know, I think that's exactly right. You know, there's the saying that uh, people look for their car keys under the street lamp because that's where the light is good, but that's not necessarily where their car keys are lost. And I think that in many cases, we use our existing thinking and a definition of what's real and how we should approach all of this with this idea that somehow if we just do A, B, C, we're going to get to the solution at the end at D. Whereas really, we need to be mixing the letters up and taking a whole different approach to understanding uh, what it is that we're confronted with and how we're positioned. And that when we do that, we can see new connections, new possibilities, uh, and a new future that in some ways our existing thinking actually prevents us from seeing, envisioning, and being able to move toward. Okay, and, and let's jump to the, uh, the buzzword of the moment, impact investing, and how I think most people who have sort of engaged with it, whether they're working in the field themselves or they're, they're working in finance and, and they want to shift in that direction. I think somewhere they have this niggling feeling that there is a problem with capitalism, that infinite growth is not sustainable, that there are lots of inefficiencies and the market might not be the best way to manage our society and our environment. Do you think it's, it's a matter of we're going in the right direction, we've just got further to go? Or are there some fundamental issues with the way impact investing is being plugged into the, the capitalist system? 
what's been interesting to watch is I think that what happens is you begin with innovations that are kind of outside of the, the mainstream, outside of the norm. And over time, as those innovations become more mainstream, as they uh, get more traction, as they're adopted by more actors, I think there's a tendency to take those ideas and, and scrunch them down into ways that we can manage and think about within the existing systems and structures. And within impact investing, we, we clearly are seeing uh, this process. And, and it's a, on the one hand, it's a tension. On the other hand, it's a healthy dynamic. But the fact is, you know, we need to have conversations around scale, but those conversations have to be in the context of what are we ultimately trying to do? And I think part of the challenge that we have when we talk about scaling impact investing is that at its core, impact investing is not about accommodating traditional approaches to finance and investing. It's about advancing alternatives to traditional investing and finance. And so the more we try to simply you know, release a new ETF that, it, that has some element of green or sustainability, and we call that good, the less we're positioned to be able to capture the real possibility for change and transformation that a deeper impact investing allows for. The other aspect of this that I've been thinking a lot about and I address in the book at some length is the whole notion of, of mutual impact. And the idea that impact investing is not something that we should think about doing to other people. <laughs> you know, how many jobs were created in this community? How has this community changed? Uh, what happened differently as a result of our investment dollar, but rather something that we're engaged with other people around. And that we, in fact, asset owners, investors, uh, people deploying capital, managers, financial advisors, all have uh, an opportunity to really be engaged in a much more profound way and to really be you know, a part of kind of living within an investment process as opposed to simply managing one. And so when we talk about scale, it's very hard to scale that transformative element and possibility of impact. And it's part of why I, I begin with this whole idea that we need to understand that, that impact plays out in this variety of ways, that most of our impact is ignorant impact that we're just not aware of, we will never be aware of. And we have to adopt more of a posture of humility as opposed to this hubris that you hear uh, from some firms and from some actors who think that they have the answer after you know, two years of engaging in impact investing, let's say, as opposed to recognizing that really this is an opportunity for transformation and growth uh, of both self and other, if you will. Mm, so if we have a theory of change and, and we set our fund and we're going to say we're going to you know, have this impact, change this group, and that's going to be great for you, which I guess is your definition of the other, perhaps we then need to appreciate and deal with the reality that we might need to change ourselves as well and that that might be a cost, but changing both sides is really what it takes. And if you're only willing to have that externally, then you're only getting halfway there. I mean, I think is that perhaps a challenge that people aren't willing to change themselves, that that's, that's far more difficult than simply allocating capital in a different direction? I actually think people want to change themselves. I, I think part of the, what has happened, let's say, in the last 10 years of impact investing has been this process where people realize that we actually know how to, quote, do this. Like the, the tactics and the execution are actually there. We, we know how to deploy capital. We know how to think about 
a variety of different types of return. And what's really lacking is you, you can deploy an entire portfolio of assets, uh, get to the end of a reporting period, you've got all the numbers in front of you, you, you can claim you know, all this, quote, impact, and yet nothing has changed, and you're left with this sense of vacuousness. Uh, when in fact, what brings us into this conversation is a, a growing awareness on the part of many that we can do more, we can do better, uh, we can, quote, change the world. And part of changing the world requires that we change ourselves, that we change our understanding of self in relation to the other, uh, that we are open to that possibility and prospect. Now, we can create cheap impact, we can create broad and distributed impact, but if we really want to get the full benefit of engaging in this work and practice, we need to ourselves be open to our own evolution and development as beings, really, if you will. And so this is part of what I, I get both frustrated by in terms of the mainstream conversation around you know, what impact investing is, and I feel the frustration of others who are saying, wait a minute, you know, we've done this, this, and this, and yet you know, I still don't feel as if I'm connected. I don't feel as if we're creating the change that I had thought we were talking about. And so this is where we need to open up the conversation in a different way. And, and what the book does, it, it does not present answers specifically because I want us to stop and to simply reflect and sit, to be present in these different contradictions that we find ourselves within and not rush to the solution or the answer before we really understand what the opportunity and the analysis needs to be. To paraphrase something that uh, Einstein is said to have said, I'm not sure that he actually did, but uh, and he said basically that if he was given a question or a challenge uh, that the world depended on, and he only had an hour to be able to solve you know, this challenge, that he would spend 55 minutes thinking about the challenge and only five minutes thinking about the solution. Because if you reflect deeply and accurately and with enough perspective on an issue, the solutions often come out of that process as opposed to trying to force ourselves immediately into a solution because then you simply position yourselves to argue against each other as opposed to co-create uh, possibilities with each other. Yeah, this concept of people coming out the other side of a project and saying, I don't feel you know, X, Y, Z. Perhaps that was that lack of planning. But I think that's a very you know, intangible that you're never going to find a metric for. You've sort of talked about your aversion to solely focusing on, on the issue of impact metrics that we need to come back to this element of what do you feel. So to get a little bit more practical, um, if there were people that were right at the start, like they had, they had themselves set up, they had a financial structure uh, really to jump in with a fund and, and they were setting it up, what sort of planning, what sort of structures, what would you hope that would sort of set them on the right direction, you know, for setting themselves up right now in the impact space? Well, the first thing is not to start with a fund. And this is really a central consideration. The, everybody has been rushing to launch these structures that in essence mirror and mimic what we already do in traditional finance. But what we begin with is an understanding that in fact, you're not gonna be able to fundamentally change community or planet in a eight year structure with two one year extensions and a two and 20 fee structure. It's not gonna happen. And so uh, the best you can hope for is you know, some incremental innovation uh, launching one, two, three 
organizations or firms that are able to advance some incremental change. But if we're really talking about that we need to think differently about the nature of time, the idea that we're going to take a traditional private equity or venture structure to do that through is just, you know, it just is obviously wrong. It may be a part of the solution that we come up with over time. But the first thing is you shouldn't start with your solution. And that's what a lot of us do as we enter this practice. We say, gosh, I have a new idea for an investment strategy. It's this fund that does X, Y, Z. When in fact, we should be looking at uh, maybe an evergreen fund, a long-term holding company structure, a cooperative. I mean, there's a variety of different answers that may actually be more suitable to what it is we claim to be interested in. And I think this is really the challenge with the entry in the past, you know, let's say 10 years of a lot of folks from traditional finance is that they come into this conversation with a preconceived understanding of what the discussion is about and what the solutions or the options are for addressing and advancing that discussion. And then they get frustrated when they end up with many of the same challenges and issues at the end of their fund period that they started with initially. Uh, So what I'm challenging all of us to do is to back up and not do exactly what you said, not be practical first, not plan first, reflect, engage, shut up and listen first, (laughs) you know, adopt more of a posture of humility as we enter into this practice, because it is a practice, you know, it is not a set of solutions that we're bringing to market, unless all we care about is building our firm, uh, aggregating capital to manage and collecting our fee for having done so. So that's what I'm challenging. I'm saying that as we mainstream this, we have to recognize that a lot of the entities that are stepping forward that are promoting themselves as great vehicles for impact actually have a vested interest in maintaining the very systems and structures that others of us are calling into question and saying we need to revisit. We're not going to address the issue of capital concentration among the highest percentages of our population by simply doing more of the same. We have to step back. We have to fundamentally question the core kind of purpose and meaning and intent of what we're trying to do. I would suggest that if we do that, we will find ourselves will naturally move into another level of personal change and transformation at the same time that we're creating partnerships and collaborations to understand not only the possibilities for how we can structure capital differently, but the purposes to which we're applying that capital. And that this really is the impact opportunity broadly writ. Uh, this is what we all have the potential to engage in. And we are, we're missing that by focusing on you know, how to create and distribute more product and thinking that somehow that will of it, in and of itself create the impact we seek. Does that relate to the start with why? that that really should be that first moment? Exactly. And I think that for me, what happened was I, you know, and again, keep in mind, I'm, I'm coming out of this directly from a practice background. I mean, I've been involved in helping a variety of families create their impact strategies. Uh, we build the teams. We've deployed capital. I've sat on up to five different investment committees for multiple families, all doing the work. And it's out of that that I really came to realize that part of the challenge for the field as a whole, as well as for myself, is that by focusing on the, the how, we tend to blow by issues of why. 
and we assume that we're all on the same page with regard to why we are doing this. And that's just not the case. And we ourselves as individuals, uh, I would argue over time, go deeper and deeper and deeper with regard to the motivation, the why, the purpose, the meaning that we're trying to achieve in our life's work. And that that certainly is true, I would think as well, for the types of institutions that are now being attracted to this, that we have to kind of step back and say, you know, why are we here? What are we ultimately trying to do? And not confuse kind of tool with task not assume that because uh, an entity or an individual has been successful in mainstream investing and finance, that they're necessarily going to be successful within a strategy that's trying to advance impact. And rather, we need to engage ourselves, both as a community, as families, as advisors, working with asset owners, and significantly as a variety of stakeholders, inviting all of us into a different type of conversation. And, And that's why I I spent the time really trying to get some clarity for myself around some of these issues and why, you know, I wrote the book and I'm giving away the ebook and have priced the paperback and, and hardback basically at cost because I really am not focused on selling books. I, I really want us to have a different conversation. And so the book is kind of an offering uh, to our community uh, in that direction. Mm, I think your book certainly this podcast a lot of the time it's preaching to the converted these are people in the space and and they they want to make the shift how can this idea of asking the why starting with beneficiaries i'm thinking more deeply about the purpose of capital how can that be spread to people that might not think that there's a problem they might be really focused on profit maximization they just want to beat the competition they just want to get a bigger house is that sort of a next step? Is that, is that a follow-on from you know, people who are already engaged for it to flow to the community? Or is there a way um, that we can spread the message? I mean, certainly. I'd love to engage you know, many and all of the mainstream in this discussion and in this dialogue that, you know, that we are having both you and I today, but also within our community, because this is a topic that I think more and more impact investors are circling around and exploring but that said, you know, just because you have ears doesn't mean you can hear. And I think that various folks are pulled into this conversation because they intuitively, at a very visceral level, feel this sense of separation of self and other. They feel unfulfilled in terms of the traditional answers and approaches that they have been engaged in advancing. Uh, they intuit that there is a different way that we could be in this context. And I think it's those people that I really would like to try to engage and reach and, and be in dialogue with because they're the ones who are most able to hear what it is that I'm trying to explain and explore. And so, I don't know. I mean, we'll see, you know, never say never. But I mean, you know, like I, I've been to Davos. Uh, this isn't the conversation they're having at Davos. Mm. <laughs> um, so I don't really feel this big need to go to Wall Street and try to convince these people of this perspective. I think that both the book and this conversation gets pulled forward by those who are asking some of these types of questions and have the patience, quite frankly, to sit with those questions in a different way. One of the things I intentionally uh, did not do in the book was conclude with any kind of summary or action plan or here's five points to purpose or anything like that. Mm. Uh, And one of my friends uh, who's the president of Naropa University in Colorado, which is a a Buddhist uh, university, 
uh, he said the best part of the book that he felt was that uh, it was written for grown-ups. You couldn't just like flip through it and get a brief synopsis of the main ideas and you're off to the races. You actually have to read the book. And part of what I'm trying to argue is that we as a community of practice, and I think we as a, a broader community of people, need to, to step back a little bit and just reflect uh, more seriously about what it is that we're doing. You know, some people come to these ideas naturally. I basically had to reach a certain point in my life and, and age and experience to where these questions were, quite frankly, more important than going out and developing another pitch deck and raising another round of capital. And I think that this is why in the, in the back section of the book, when you come to the, the bibliography and what I call my, my best books, uh, I actually don't have a top 10 list of here's the best books. I, I say, look, I mean, depending on where you are, different books will resonate in different ways with you. And so, you know, read the bibliography. And here's, I think I have, I don't even know, 25 or 30 books in my top 10 list. <laughs> you know, here's some places that you might start. But, you know, the fact is books that I read at the start of my process I looked back on later on and I thought, geez, you know, that I thought that was such a great book. But actually, when I think about this, that and the other, yeah, it was an OK book. And, and I think that your perspective kind of shifts uh, over time, both in life and in this type of process. And so uh, what I'm saying is that we need to engage ourselves more intentionally in this process of discovery as opposed to the process of selling solutions and answers all the time to each other and turning our life into a series of pitch presentations. Mm, well, I'm certainly not going to let you get away without uh, giving us a, a, number one, a number one top book recommendation, but we'll leave that till the end. That's uh, always my last question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's apt we're having this conversation when Davos is just getting started. And uh, I've sort of been in this space researching for, you know, it's only been two or three years now, but you sometimes get that element of, what's the point? I mean, I studied my Master's of International Relations. You've got the, the realist versus the liberalist view. You know, the realists say power is all that matters. Might is right. It is the way it is. While the other side is perhaps using the word should a little bit more, a little bit more idealistic. So in some ways, if, if Davos isn't having, if they're not having these conversations at Davos, is there still a point? Like, uh, we shouldn't throw our hands up and give up. But, you know, how can we breach that divide? Well, I think we begin by recognizing that Davos, uh, despite what some of us might like to think when we're attending Davos, is not the center of the universe. <laughs> and, you know, change and evolution and development comes uh, at all levels of the system, if you will. And we have an opportunity, again, to, wherever we are, be a part of that process. And that can mean the process of change and evolution and development that I go through as an individual when I sit by myself and read and reflect and think. It's that same opportunity to be engaged in the process of change when I'm with my family and with uh, people in my immediate kind of uh, relationship set. It's that opportunity that we have when we step out of those areas and, and leave our tribe and re-engage with a broader understanding of community and of who we are kind of challenge to be in dialogue with, it moves at all these different levels. And so, you know, there's a Buddhist saying, uh, don't do something, sit there. And I think that we have this frenetic aspect to how we engage in life today that seems to confuse uh, activity with uh, meaningful action. 
we need to recognize that there's a lot of different places and ways that we can engage and advance uh, the work that needs to come. And that in some cases, uh, in some places, that, that is at a conference where we can sit and listen to, to new ideas and uh, new experiences. The problem is that a lot of the conference scene uh, now is populated by people simply promoting their organizations or their answer, uh, and it's become very transactive. So you go into the halls to really do business, quote unquote. You know, in some ways, that's how this, the world works, and great. In other ways, it's a shame because we are skating along the surface of something that is actually quite profound, and we're missing out on opportunities to not only, you know, again, change the world, but change ourselves. And so for each of us, we're on a different path. And what may work for me and be part of a process for me to really go deeper, become more effective in my work is most likely not going to be the path that everybody else should take. But at the same time, we need to be connecting with each other with regard to the paths we're on and just think differently about how we approach this. And again, quite frankly, some of this for me personally is, is highly aspirational. You know, I am hugely judgmental. It's hard for me to shut up when I'm talking to somebody and I have an idea that I think is better than what they're talking about. I mean, it's just horrible. I'm like, I, I completely undermine, you know, my own ideas in terms of how we should operate. And I'm learning, I'm getting better. I shut up more. You know, in fact, this fall when I released the book, Instead of going on a speaking tour and spending, you know, whatever, half hour, 45 minutes telling people, you know, here's my analysis, here's how I approach this, here's what I think we should do, I have simply set up, uh, first off, I've said I'm not giving any keynotes, I'm not giving any solo talks, and that what I want to do is be in dialogue with various people in, who are coming to these same sets of questions and challenges from, obviously, a different place, and again, it's out of that conversation that you find better possibilities and better ideas than simply my trying to promote my ideas and possibilities and perspective. And so at SOCAP this year, I was in dialogue with Laura Tyson, uh, who's the former chief economic advisor for Bill Clinton and is now the dean at the Haas Business School. Uh, I've been in dialogue with folks who are asset owners. I've been in dialogue with folks who are financial managers. I've been in dialogue with a host of different people. And I think that just simply taking that one step and doing something a little differently from what I would normally do uh, frees me not to have to feel like I have the answer and not to have to defend the answers I have. And I think that's a, an interesting way to enter into this conversation. Uh, so that's in essence uh, what I'm trying to, to be about in terms of the change process. And you know, that works for some folks and it won't work for others. And some people want to listen to people who have ideas and solutions, and that's fine too. It's, it's all just part of that process. But I'm saying we need to be more creative in terms of how we're engaging, uh, not only in the conversation, but in the, the creation of the solutions that we then kind of come around and work, advance together. Yeah, I think that dialogue is vital. And I'll, I'll defend conferences there because I think, well, you know, people on stage and people might just be wanting to give away their business cards and push their pitch deck. I think it's the moments outside. I think in our digital age, when we find that we can have Zoom meetings and think that that's just as good as a face-to-face -face meeting, the conference is a unique ability to have those spontaneous meetings and chat to people you might not otherwise meet. So I think that's a really important element of filling the gap. So a quick little advocacy for conferences there. But the key part of what you're describing is, is the, the interaction and not the posturing and not the transaction and not the selling. 
And that's what I'm kind of pushing against in terms of the convening process, is I feel like a lot of the conferences, the gathering of the tribes, and they're, you know, like mind talking to like mind, and a lot of the conversation misses what you're describing. I think that uh, that's what we have to keep in mind as we do go into those opportunities. Uh, and I go to conferences a lot as well, but I find that I'm less interested uh, in the conference scene, if you will, and working the circuit uh, than I am in having this type of conversation that we're having right now, which oftentimes is very hard to do in a conference setting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then pulling back to something, you mentioned it in the book, but I guess it's something that has driven my thinking in this space for a long time. So 10, 15 years ago when I was studying economics, really took to the structure of it and this idea of resource allocation, supply and demand. And, but as I went, moved through the field, saw that a lot of the assumptions were too simplistic, that infinite growth is not sustainable. And when you then try to look at negative externalities, you look at the environmental issues, we realize that this economic system really great intentions, but just not sophisticated enough for the ultimate sophistication of, of the natural ecosystem. Uh, and this age old problem of, of humans thinking they've stepped out of the ecosystem that we control nature, which is obviously causing problems and will continue to until we, we re-engage with the ecosystem and, and realize we do have a huge impact. Do you think th this old story that we won't deal with climate change until you know the sea level's far too high and then it'll be too late. Do you think we'll have to wait for catastrophe before we pull back? Ooh, that's tough because if, if you say yes, then it calls into question a lot of the things that we're engaged in that we think hold solutions for addressing climate change. I think that, um, Again, maybe depending on the time of day and the time in my life, I would respond differently to that question. Uh, some, sometimes I would be very kind of optimistic about the possibilities that we have. And other times I would be, uh, to your previous comment, more realistic in terms of understanding that in fact, you know, the horse is uh, out of the barn. And a lot of the forces that we have unleashed because of their very complexity that you alluded to earlier, are really well beyond our ability to dial it back and to rejigger it. If you look at the recent uh, report from the UN that said that we have, what, 13 years, 15 years to fundamentally redesign capitalism. And I would argue it's fundamentally we're talking about financial capitalism because that's really you know, the driver for so much of corporate and governmental and, and other performance. But if that's true, if you, if you believe what the scientists say, we have to have some level of sadness uh, about the prospect of our actually being able to, to navigate that turn. And uh, there's a, in the book, I talk about the Dark Mountain Project, uh, which is a, an initiative of artists and musicians and whatnot. And their position is really interesting because they're saying, look, uh, the eco side is underway. We are in the course of destroying and killing the planet. So the question is less, what's the latest kind of shining solution that we're going to convince ourselves of than it is a question of how are we as humanity called to be present uh, in the face of that ecocide, uh, in the face of that destruction? And I think if you engage with some of those types of questions, you, oddly enough, end up in a place where you're not at peace in the sense of letting go and giving up, but you recognize more fully and more clearly 
uh, where we are and how you as an individual are called to be in the context of that reality. You know, for me personally, the reading process was striking because it really forced me to place myself appropriately within the flow of history, if you will, and recognize that on the one hand, there is nothing that I can do. And on the other hand, I'm called to do as much and everything as I can. And having that, I don't know, it's, it's not like an insight, it's kind of moving into an understanding of self relative to other, as self relative to challenges, as self relative to opportunity, relieves you of a phenomenal amount of stress. <laughs> uh, you, you actually are able to be present in a much more healthy and vibrant way uh, because you recognize on the one hand, you know, the, the weight of the world is not on your shoulders. And on the other hand, that you have in your hands uh, tools and approaches and responses that we're each called to advance uh, in our own way and in, in our own context and community in which we find ourselves. And so it's this combination of kind of personal liberation and charge, if you will, or calling to be differently as we go forward. And I think that's the part that, I, that is getting lost when we have these discussions about metrics and definitions and terms and solutions. So yeah, on a more practical term then, you know, people that may be on the cusp of frustration and throwing their hands up and saying it's all lost, that perhaps, yeah, they just haven't dug deep enough. That if you do start reading, start watching videos, going to more conferences, you do meet the people and you realise, hang on, lots of people are thinking about this. Um, there are a lot of solutions coming through. We're finished if people start, start giving up. I think that's the beginning of the end. And if we can get everybody reading the books, everybody having the discussions, then uh, we can get the hive mind on the job and that will surely be the way through. I don't know. I'm, as I listen to what you're saying, there's part of me that actually wishes more people would give up because what's happening is folks, I think, are riding horses over cliffs. They're not really challenging themselves at a, a deep enough level with regard to the implications of what they claim to care about. And so they aren't opening themselves up to really changing not only how we think, but how we act. And I think that in some ways you have to get to, well, it's like an alcoholic. You have to reach, you know, your own bottom, if you will, before you can find your way back up the other side. I think that we settle too much for simple answers and solutions and slogans and terms. And, and we confuse, we, you know, we think that because we have this great set of metrics, uh, that somehow that's the answer. And it's like, no, those are indicators toward an answer. And we need to, again, uh, not try to convince ourselves of our own righteousness in the face of this, but rather really recognize that we need to come at this conversation from a greater place of humility if we're going to be able to see what it is that needs to be done as opposed to defend what it is that we're already doing. So on the one hand, yes, I mean, I think we, we don't want people to become, you know, kind of uh, unnecessarily pessimistic. We don't want people to uh, feel that they're helpless. And we need to recognize that to be helpful, uh, we need to, to be more of a, what people have called a wounded servant or, you know, somebody who basically can play a role of facilitation and assistance and engagement as opposed to uh, simply directing all the time and being convinced, again, of our positions and the righteousness of the beliefs that we have today, because those beliefs need to change. And we are as much 
a part of the problem as the things that are the objects of our impact, if you will. And so that's where we need to, to really give some thought and to not speak so much and to listen and to read and understand that in fact, the issues that we're grappling with today are fundamentally ones of separation, of dualism. It is the illusion of separation, if you, if you want to think of it that way. And we need to really turn how we're engaged personally, emotionally, intellectually uh, with the work that's before us. Mm, but isn't it important for people to feel empowered? I mean, if people give up and they're not, you know, with empowerment, then some people may think, you know, come back to the power of one. You know, if you decide not to drive your car, you might feel like, oh, look, that's just one less car. But if everybody feels that way, then we have the cumulative benefit. Does that not play a big part there? Sure. And I think that, again, questions of power are really central to a lot of this conversation. And when we talk about investing, asset owners and investors often think that they're the ones that have the right and the authority to dictate terms. And to say, this is the level of financial return that I require for my capital, for my returns. And this is, again, it's part of the opportunity we have to kind of think differently about power issues, uh, power sharing, collaboration, engagement, and fundamentally, uh, purpose. Because if you're an impact investor and you're laying claim to that title and that mantle, then we have to do things differently and not simply adopt and try to amend traditional finance and investing practices and instruments and strategies, but rather reinvent those same strategies uh, toward a new end, uh, toward new purpose. Uh, I'm not saying that we don't need economic and financial discipline. I'm saying we need to have that discipline applied in the right direction, which today it's not. And so each of us as individuals uh, and again, in the book, I'm, I'm very clear on this point that each of us as individuals really have to own our understanding of purpose and meaning and intent. And by doing so, we become more powerful actors in this space because you have greater clarity, you have greater focus, you have greater understanding of what it is that this is really about. That's the, you know, the power and in some ways the joy of engaging in this process and this reflection. I would argue that a lot of us, again, myself included, are basically beat up and down by this hyper-consumerism, this focus on materialism, this idea that you could bifurcate value and somehow think about economics as separate and apart from social and environmental factors of value creation, when in fact it's all whole, it's all one. And the fact that we have allowed ourselves to become hostage to the idea that financial performance and econometrics uh, are really the only way to measure real value. Uh, and this other stuff is either thought of as externalities or intangibles that are just beyond our ability to quantify uh, is simply gonna take us further in the same direction that we're already pursuing. And at the end of the day, again, there's a lot of paths we can take that are alternatives to that but we're not trying to go down the same path that we've been on over the last 400 years. And that's really what I'm calling the question. Okay, and, and to pull away from the philosophical a little bit, I wonder if you could give us a, a good example of an organization, a, a group that started grassroots, that started with why, that found a problem. They might've had a whole array of, of solutions from an impact fund to philanthropy to you know, volunteering groups. 
could you give us a really good example of, of a group that have used, you know, a good structure and a good flow to have a good outcome? Well, I think of the development and evolution of cooperatives as a, a way to tease apart the different types and forms of ownership that you can have uh, in order to invite not only community or employee stakeholders into that ownership structure, but to create an opportunity to use capital in, in a different way. And so you could have different levels of ownership that cooperatives offer outside actors. You can have one level that deals with governance. You can have one level that has a claim on, you know, the physical hard assets of the firm. You can have another level that has a claim on the revenues that are generated. And that on the one hand, by understanding these various aspects of ownership, and on the other hand, by bringing them together within a cooperative structure, you're able to really advance a different way to think about capital, about decision-making, about power, about authority. Uh, so I would, I would say that the cooperative movement, broadly speaking, has examples within it of a number of very innovative approaches to, to how to think about and do this work. Uh, I think that there's also initiatives around democratizing decision-making within an investment framework. So in the United States, there's a group out of uh, Boston called uh, UJIMA, that holds community congresses where you know, residents of the neighborhood come together and reflect on and debate and discuss what the economic priorities of the area should be. And then that informs uh, an investment process that uses, again, the discipline of economics and finance to really understand what the risks and opportunities might be with a given investment, but also uh, uses that democratized process to help direct capital, to help define uh, different types of return that are being sought, uh, and to really engage the community in owning capital in a different way. So, and that's just you know two examples. I think there's more and more of them out there. Uh, and again, this this goes back to this question of humility. I think that we actually know. Like you can look at any number of kind of historical experiments. We know how to think about and do this work. Uh, we just need to listen to what we already know and bring that wisdom into these conversations. And just quickly, Joe, going back to the cooperative structure, for people that aren't sort of aware, what, what's the sort of innovation there in terms of, you know, is it company structure, asset ownership, and that sort of thing that makes it different to mainstream? It's all those things and probably more. Basically, when you think about how a traditional company is structured, how it's run, how it goes out and raises money from the market, you basically have different share classes. You have different rights and uh, you know, ability to, to call and to exert power and influence as an asset owner. By pulling these apart in a different way, the way that cooperatives are able to do, you can, in fact, as I was saying, separate out uh, governance of the company from ownership of the assets, from claims on revenue of, uh, that's generated from the company. And in that way, you can allow for employees or community residents to be calling the shots as opposed to the presumption that just because I have assets, that I have capital, that I have then the right and authority to dictate to a community uh, what should be happening for them economically. So it kind of opens up a different conversation. Uh, and in that sense, really is you know, front and center with uh, you know, this conversation about how do you take some of these ideas around purpose and meaning and put them into a corporate structure. I think the, the B Lab, the B Core framework is another way that we can explore that. 
you know, there's just a host of these kind of innovative approaches to structuring firms that people are exploring and, and executing around today. And does that push up against the issue with corporations, with companies that have a personality in legal terms? You know, they're an individual entity, but they, they probably lack the morals and the ethics. And that might have been the problem that we've got in terms of environmental and, and social impacts. I think that also pushes back to following the spirit of the law as against the letter of the law. Are these the sort of issues with corporations that the cooperatives are finding solutions to? I think so. And again, it's not just cooperatives. I think there are privately held businesses can be managed and run on a, just a fundamentally different set of assumptions than publicly traded companies, which over the past few years now, not few years, the past whatever, 30, 40, 50 years have become more and more and more focused on an understanding of their purpose as the generation and optimizing of financial return to shareholders. And, you know, I gave a talk uh, at Davos, I don't know, it's got to be 15, 20 years ago, on blended value and this alternative kind of understanding of value creation, at the end of which, uh, you know, a gentleman stood up and said, I completely agree with everything you're saying, and there's absolutely nothing new about what you're talking about, because what you're describing is the traditional privately held German firm. And he then went on to describe a variety of practices that his family was engaged in, where they took serious consideration into the, the strategy and the business planning and everything for his company uh, that took into account uh, issues of environmental and social factors that would affect their region uh, and other communities around the world. And that's an option that he had available to him. The challenge with publicly traded companies, of course, is that they get that type of uh, vision or principles uh, beat out because there is this single-minded pursuit of profit to the exclusion of everything else. And that historically has brought us to where we are today. Mm, very good. Now, you mentioned blended value, a term you coined many years ago. Would you be able to give us a quick, you know, sort of, while I've got you here, it'd be great to get your perspective on what that means, a moment to explain that to my listeners. You could go about it the other way around. You could say that the opposite of blended value is a bifurcated value proposition that asks us to choose and says that uh, you either have to do well or do good. You have to make money or give it away. You have to work for a nonprofit or a for-profit. When in fact, if we pause to really think about it, you know, nonprofits have economic worth and for-profits create social value. So the idea that somehow never the two shall meet, we just know intuitively is wrong. So what has happened instead, though, is because of dualism and this idea of separation, we've evolved a whole set of uh, legal and public policy, operating uh, capital, other structures that, in essence, function with regard to a bifurcated value proposition. And by doing that, we strip out consideration of the other elements. And so when I was a social worker uh, working with street kids, I wasn't really expected to be a good financial manager <laughs> because that's what business people did. And it was okay if I kind of missed my budget or this kind of thing. And we would run nonprofits on terms that make no economic sense. I mean, what business would you cash out at the end of every year and engage in a brand new capital raise every January? That's basically what we ask nonprofits to do, spend down all of the money that they've raised in order to then justify the fact that they need more money. And it just doesn't make good business sense. What I'm saying in terms of blended value is if we really look more fundamentally at the nature of value itself, it is whole, it is non-divisible, it's made up of components. And we can talk about 
you know, the economic aspect, the social aspect, the environmental aspect of value within the firm, within capital in these different ways. But at the end of the day, the value that we seek to create over the course of a life is fundamentally whole. It is integrative. That's how we should think about then what tools and instruments and organizations, how we should apply and manage each of those in turn. Love it. That's a really great breakdown. Thank you for that. Before we do finish up, I'm going to need to push you for a book recommendation. Now, obviously, the book you've just published, The Purpose of Capital, is full of it. The bibliography really is a great starting point for anybody who wants to go deeper. But could you give us a couple of top picks? Oh, gosh. Can I at least list uh, three or four as opposed to one? Sure. <laughs> okay. Okay. And a number of these are, oddly enough, they're books that I thought I was supposed to be writing. And then I would find them and be like, oh, my God, that's the book that I thought I was going right. to write. So it kind of takes you back uh, every time that happens. So one that I thought was very good was called Economics of Good and Evil by the Czech economist Thomas Sedlicek. Uh, another one that I thought was also very good was called Fields of Blood by Karen Armstrong, who's, who's a religious historian and wrote this book to explore the interplay between uh, religion and economics and basically all of the dynamics that are involved there. And that was a, a really interesting read. Another one, The Illusion of Separation by Giles Hutchinson was also very good. He's a business strategist and has a, also has a very good blog series that I think folks would enjoy. And then also, I would encourage people to go back and read some of the, the philosophers, to read Spinoza, to read Arne Ness, who's a more recent contemporary philosopher, to read Nietzsche, Bonhoeffer, to read the Tao and really reflect on what's offered there. And that these all have kind of parts of an answer uh, that I think are, are very valuable for us in our day and age. I think that's a great list. Good to have some homework for everybody and, and plenty more for the pile beside my bed. But Jed, look, I'm going to let you go. It has been a really great chat. I think you have a unique place in the, the impact investing space. I think you're somewhat the conscience of impact investing and maybe the conscience of capitalism and just yeah, doing a lot, of thinking, a lot of thinking for all of us and, and really digging it through and, and getting it down on paper. So we all appreciate that and, and appreciate you know, the opportunity to bounce a few ideas off you. It's been really great. It's my pleasure, and thank you so much for both the opportunity and your kind words. I really do appreciate it. So I'll look forward to seeing you down there and down under, I guess I should say, uh, sometime in the next year or two. So take care. Bye.